0: Oh, sweet Jesus, thank you for this privilege to come into your presence, to be able to pray. Uh, As we've said many times before, I'm so thankful for the fact that you're more willing to bless us than we have had the courage to ask. But I do pray that you would bless us, and I pray that you would give us um, a picture of your heart tonight. And so we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. We're told in Psalm 77 and verse 13 that your way, O God, is in the sanctuary and who is so great a God as our God? Now, the word way here can be defined as a journey. So it's almost as if it's saying that it's a roadmap, right? That the roadmap can be found in the sanctuary. Now, in the beginning, as we talked about earlier, we had face-to-face fellowship with God, but after man fell, that direct access was lost and we ourselves became lost. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 goes so far as to say that your sins have separated you from your God. And we addressed this in a previous evening. It's not that God saw, oh, they sinned and he ran from us. The narrative in Genesis is we ran from him. We were so filled with shame and unworthiness from what we have done, that it's a natural barrier between us and God that God is seeking to address. And so uh, our way back to God is found in the sanctuary. If you remember in our third night together, we talked about this idea that one of the things that God was seeking to do through the sanctuary service was to separate the object of his hatred, sin, from the object of his love, which is us, right? God has this predicament. The thing he loves the most is filled with the thing that he hates the most. And so he wants to preserve us while getting rid of the thing that's hurting us and is causing separation in our relationship with Him. And that surgery is performed in the sanctuary. It's helping us to see sin in the way that God sees sin, that it's heinous, that it's gross, that it's painful, right? That's the purpose. So in Exodus chapter 25, and verse 8, God told us to build a sanctuary. Why? So that we could dwell together once again. That's why He wanted that. God wants that restoration. Okay, build me a sanctuary so that He can dwell among us. So something about the sanctuary service is going to teach us about how God will later indeed be reunited with His people. So we went through this again earlier, but just as a brief recap. Sorry, cameras. I'm have to turn around here. Um, that there, is basically there's an outer court on this side here. People came to the gate when they offered their sacrifice. Then we had the bronze altar and the bronze laver. This is where the sacrifice was actually offered. There was a cleansing and washing that happened for the priests here. But then there was the holy place, the candlestick, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. And then beyond that, There was a veil, and this veil separated man from the presence of God. And the presence of God was found on top of the Ark of the Covenant there between the two cherubim. As it says in Psalm 80 and verse 1, you who dwell between the cherubim shine forth. Now, the idea here is largely inside of the actual sanctuary itself or the tabernacle itself, the plan of salvation was being carried out. Someone, whenever they committed a sin, they brought their animal to that front entrance They confessed over the animal, not to the priest, but they confessed over the animal. And then the person who committed the sin killed the animal themselves. And the priest caught that blood, brought the blood into the sanctuary, and they sprinkled that blood. They put some on the horns of the altar of incense, and they sprinkled some on the veil that separated the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was and the holy place, the rest of the interior area of the sanctuary. And this is what brought atonement, right? This is what provided that atonement. And we talked about this last night, that when Jesus died, that veil was torn from top to bottom, signifying that the sanctuary service was no longer required, right? That that type that was on earth had met its fulfillment in the life and death of Jesus. And the sanctuary is closed for business because the real lamb is hanging on a tree outside of the city, right? That's what we talked about last night, okay? So, Um, In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, we're told this, "...for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year..." You kind of get this sense of laboriousness with this language. They had to do it continually and year after year after year. There's kind of this seeming sense of futility, right? It was a shadow of the good things to come. It wasn't the very image. And you could never, with these same sacrifices continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. It was serving a purpose and pointing to the real deal, but it wasn't the real deal. It was a means to an end, not the end of itself, in and of itself. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, right? If it really worked, why did they stop offering them? For the worshipers once purified would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year for it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It was an act of faith looking forward to what the real Lamb of God would do, which is what makes John the Baptist's statement so important in John chapter 1, I believe verse 29 or 28, where he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, okay? So they couldn't do the job, these animal sacrifices, but they pointed to the thing that could. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What's alluded to here by the author of Hebrews is that was something they had to do year after year after year in the Old Testament economy and in the sanctuary economy. But when Jesus came, it was done once for all. It did the job. Amen? did the job completely, and we addressed this before that this idea that the entire sanctuary service actually was laid out in the form of a cross, right, pointing forward to what Jesus would indeed do for you and for me. So God was showing us what would take hundreds of years later, and this was to prepare us for when the true Messiah would come. So by looking at the shadow, you get some details, but it's a very vague picture. The shadow of the Old Testament sanctuary was the same way. The New Testament shows us that that shadow has been fulfilled in Jesus. And we know this based upon 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. And Peter knew Jesus very well. He says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. In our third night together, we read from Leviticus chapter one. That's exactly what was required in the sanctuary service, an animal without blemish and without spot. That represented Jesus whose life was without blemish and whose blood was precious. That was the whole point. God was not some sadist who just wanted blood of animals to flow on the mountaintops. That wasn't the point of what he was doing. It was teaching you again, that sin is gory, that sin is messy, right? That sin is not a pleasant thing. So Jesus here fulfills what those lambs represented. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we don't have to do what they did in the sanctuary service anymore. We don't have to take an animal on a journey uh, to offer a sacrifice. So, but what I want to do now is show what the, uh, the last part of the plan of salvation is that the sanctuary teaches us and the connection between the sanctuary service on earth and what's happening in heaven. In the book of Exodus, when Moses was given directions on how to build the tabernacle that we had a diagram of just a moment ago, God gave very specific dimensions, instructions, what materials to use, and it was all for a purpose, right? God wasn't arbitrary. It wasn't, this was not iPad parenting, right? Just stare at this and leave me alone for a while because you're, you're bothering me. That's not what he was doing. Everything that they were being taught and told to do was teaching them an important spiritual lesson about the plan of salvation regarding the sanctuary. So he says, according to the pattern that I show you, Exodus 25 and verse 9, that is, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. Don't deviate. Make it according to the pattern I gave you, skipping down to verse 40 of Exodus 25, and see to it that you make them according again to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Now, how many people in this world have done any, in this room, have done any seamstress work? Right, You ever go to Joanne Fabrics and you get the material, you get the patterns, right? You get that brown tissue paper. Anytime I went to my grandma's house, she always had these things. I always played with the needles because I'm a kid and you play with dangerous things. She had the tomato thing with all the pushpins in it and I was always messing around. But I remember she would always buy these things, these patterns, right? And the idea behind the pattern is that this thing does actually exist and we're teaching you how to make something that already exists, right? That's what they're doing. It's already been done. It's already been tested and proven. They don't give you directions for something that has never existed and may not exist. We'll just see if it works. No, those patterns, when you do it the way they tell you, it will produce something that already exists. Does that make sense? That's kind of the purpose behind what they're doing. He's using similar language here, but where's the original? If they're making the tabernacle on earth based off of the pattern that's shown them, where's the original? Going back to the book of Hebrews, chapter eight, beginning in verse one. Now, this is the main point of the things that we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens. Okay. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary that this one also have something to offer. So it's speaking of Jesus, who is a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man, something that God himself built. Okay. And continuing on to verse four, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. This is Hebrews eight, verse four, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. And then listen to verse five, who serve the copy and the shadow of what type of things of heavenly things. So the Bible just said that everything that happened in the Old Testament sanctuary service was a copy or a shadow of existent realities in heaven. Do we see that from the text of scripture and i apologize i blew up the font on all these for every presentation but i forgot to this week i'm so sorry i can't do it right now but hopefully you can somewhat see it if not uh the, you can do it in your bibles there it's in hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5 now as moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle again for he said see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain they're quoting exodus chapter 25 which we just read here's the point the original sanctuary is in heaven Okay, and that word shadow is used again here, which reminds me of Hebrews chapter ten and verse one, that those the sacrifices were a shadow of the good things to come. Okay, all right, Hebrews chapter nine now, beginning in verse eleven, but Christ came as high priest again of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle that wasn't made with hands; that is not of this creation. He's serving as a priest in a better sanctuary. In fact, that's the the theme of Hebrews, is this idea of better. In Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is better than the angels. In Hebrews chapter 2, he's better than Moses, I believe. Sometimes you get those mixed up, but it talks about he's better than the angels, he's better than Moses, he's better than the priests. Jesus is the fulfillment, the truest fulfillment of what God always intended. He's something better than what previously existed. Okay, now with the blood of goats and calves, I'm going to go back to verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, but not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place, where that Ark of the Covenant is, we'll talk about that in a moment, having obtained eternal redemption. So the very act of offering sacrifices and those sacrifices bringing atonement Jesus is doing that type of reality in heaven on our behalf, okay? That's what's happening in heaven, verse 23 now of Hebrews 9. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better things, sacrifices than these. So they cleanse the earthly sanctuary with the blood of animals. The heavenly sanctuary is cleansed with something better, the very blood of Jesus himself. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Which is such good news, isn't it? that Jesus is testifying and ministering on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary. So Jesus represents the sacrificed, and He also represents the high priest. Everything that happened in the Old Testament sanctuary service was pointing to Jesus. They were a shadow of the things that would teach us something about the ministry of Jesus. So the two primary characters in the sanctuary economy were the sacrifice and the priest, and Jesus, we were just told, fills the role of both. He's the thing that sacrificed, and he also offers the mediation or the transferring through that same sacrifice of his health. So the services of the earthly sanctuary teach us about the heavenly sanctuary. The role of the earthly priest reveals to us the role of the heavenly priest, Jesus. Now, how many parents are there in this room? Okay, Have you ever been in situations where you know you can't give a direct explanation because your children can't understand something? So you had to use like an example or a story or something along those lines it's no different here where do you think you got that from you're made in the image of god god understands that sometimes we need illustrations we need pictures we need examples right and so he used a diagram if you will if you will to teach us about the heavenly realities because we can't go into heaven and look at it right anyone else has anyone ever traveled into heaven and seen what that looked like or had that no me neither so God said, because you can't do that, I'm going to give you something on earth that will show you what it's like in heaven. Does that make sense? That's the whole purpose of the sanctuary service is to give you a picture and for you to derive the benefit of the lessons of what's actually happening on your behalf in heaven right now. And I don't know about you, but I take great consolation in the fact that Jesus was willing to sacrifice himself and he's willing to minister on our behalf. Does anyone else take consolation in that? we would never have known that were it not for the old testament sanctuary services we would never know he did that to teach us that important lesson okay so he's giving us a peephole view of what is happening in the heavens and he does it through this model okay now what was the most important thing that happened in the sanctuary service it's found in leviticus chapter 16. it's called the day of atonement or as our Hebrew friends may say, Yom Kippur, okay? So during this particular day, they had the most important service of all the services that happened in the sanctuary. There were two types of services, the daily services and the yearly services. The daily services are what we've talked about before whenever Bob committed a sin and he had to take that walk of shame from his tent all the way down to the tabernacle, he confessed over the animal, he kills the animal, the blood's taken inside because the priest is mediating on his behalf, behalf, sprinkling that blood on his behalf. Okay, that was the daily service that happened. Okay? Now there was also another thing that happened, a morning and evening sacrifice that was given for the sins that people didn't know that they had committed. And I'm thankful for that too. Amen? That's showing that God is looking for as many reasons to get you into heaven as possible. He understands that we're but dust and there's things we won't see, we're covered in that. The things we do know, we need to take responsibility, right? We need to bring those to God and let him advocate for us and mediate for us to confess our sins. He's faithful and just to take care of that, right? That's our role. But there are things that we don't know and even that he's made provision for in the morning and evening sacrifices for the sins that we were not aware of. So that's the daily services, okay? The main purpose of the daily services was that your sin was transferred into the sanctuary. And when that happened, atonement was made, and you could go back to your tent at peace. It didn't matter how many people saw you walking that lamb. It didn't matter because you knew that you were right with God and you could move on with your life. That doesn't have to define you anymore, right? God is taking care of that sin. I can move on with my life. That's what happened on the daily service. Your sin was transferred in to the sanctuary. Okay, we talked about that in our third night together. But the yearly service, there was something that happened once a year and it was called the Day of Atonement. And the main issue of what transpired on that day was transferring all of that record of sin that had gone in 359 days because their calendar was different than ours. All of that sin that had been transferred in over the course of the year, they went through one kind of purging and cleansing process to remove all record of that sin, to completely remove it from the camp. And I'm also thankful for that, that God doesn't want any form of record or reminder of my sins. He's making a full and final dealing of that, right? So it's kind of like the the daily service is taking your trash and putting it in the bin outside. And the Day of Atonement was somebody taking what was in that bin and completely removing it. You never see it again. Right, there were kind of two phases of removal, if you will, that took place. So the priest now on the Day of Atonement, I'll just give you an overview of this. I would encourage you to read this tonight or tomorrow, Leviticus chapter 16. Okay, this explains the Day of Atonement. There's also some more explanation given in Leviticus chapter 23. Okay, There's a small segment there as well. Leviticus 16 and Leviticus 23. We'll read a little bit from 23 tonight, but Leviticus 16 is your homework assignment. I'm not going to check it. I'm going to work on the honor system here, but I think you will benefit from seeing the whole story. I'm just going to summarize for time's sake tonight. So on the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, the priest first sacrifices a bull on his own behalf. He's making a sacrifice for himself. No confession is made, but he's about to do something that's so important that it only happens once a year. He will actually pass beyond that veil into the most holy place, into the very presence of God. And before he does that, he's making sure that he's right with God because he's a man, right? Like you and like me, he can make mistakes. Life happens. Anyone else have life happen to them or is that just me? Yeah. So when life happens, right, even as a priest, you got to deal with that. So he did. First thing he did, he's already confessed his sin. But what's happening out with this animal, no confession is happening. It's just a cleansing. So he sacrifices this animal. He brings it in, sprinkles it. And then what he does is he takes an incense, uh, a censer that was full of incense and he wafts it kind of behind the curtain so there's a big cloud of smoke, so he can't see the presence of God on the other side of that veil. It's hidden through a big cloud of smoke, right? This is for his own life's preservation sake, because no man can see God and live, we're told, right? So the incense fills that, that back compartment, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. Now, what's inside of that Ark of the Covenant? Do you remember? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, the very law of God, that very standard of righteousness, if you will. Okay, so when that happened, He now is going to to go behind there, and there are two goats involved in this service. There's how many goats? Two. Two. okay? There's a scapegoat, and there's a goat for the Lord or the Lord's goat, okay? The scapegoat, how many of you ever heard that phrase before, scapegoat? You know, that's kind of borrowing from biblical language. That happens a lot, by the way. Things in society, they borrow biblical language. Sometimes they distort it. It's not accurately reflecting the biblical principle. It happens so there's the scapegoat as well we'll come back to that that stays out so they basically cast lots it's kind of like rolling dice or so to kind of make a decision on which thing they're to choose kind of like rock paper scissors of sorts but it's they're kind of a little more mature than that Uh, giving god an opportunity to speak to say this one or this one the scapegoat stays outside of the tabernacle until this next part of the service is done once the incense is wafted into the most holy place, he kills this other goat, the goat for the Lord. Nothing is, is, is confessed over this animal. It's just, the blood of this animal is just used for cleansing purposes, that's it. The animal's killed and he goes into the very most holy place and he can only do this once a year. This is the most sacred space on earth. You're coming into the very presence of God. They sprinkle some of that blood on the Ark of the Covenant and then they move from the most holy place back all the way towards the entrance of the sanctuary, okay, where the the court was. They go through the holy place, get the most holy place in the holy place in the courtyard, and what they basically have done is swept from the back part of the room All the way. If you ever cleaned a house? Hopefully you've cleaned a house more than once in your life. If not, I may not be doing a visitation. Um, I'm just kidding. I'll help you clean if I have to. But in that situation, they're, they're starting from the back and moving, right? Making progress from the very back all the way to the front. And what's happening here is a symbolic cleansing and removal of all the record of sin that has come into this place 359 days out of that year. On this day, no sin could go in. Okay, because it just makes sense. Like if you're trying to clean a room but people keep walking in this room, you can't really clean it all that well, right? So no one goes in, no one enters there, and he actually has bells on the, the base of his garment and they tied a rope around their foot, is a tradition that we're told. It's not a biblical thing that we're told, but it's a tradition we're told. Because if this guy dropped dead or something bad happened, if he didn't do this right and, you know, was struck dead at a judgment or whatever, they'd have to pull the guy out of there because they can't go in into the Most Holy Place and get him. They'd have to drag him and pull him out. So those bells would be dinging and ringing so you could kind of know around their garment, things are still happening. It's okay, right? No reason to be concerned here. However long it takes, it takes, but at least there's movement happening. There's progress happening. So lastly, um, once they came (coughs) out of the tabernacle, now the scapegoat is waiting for them. The first goat has already been killed. Now the the blood that's on their hands, they were using to minister and cleanse from the, the most holy place all the way out. They laid the two hands, the high priest had laid his two hands on the scapegoat and confessed over that goat all of those confessed sins of the people. Because the only sin that was symbolically inside of the sanctuary was sin that somebody had confessed, right? That was all the trips that Bob made and Mary made and Lucy made and Susie made over the course of the year. All of that was now being confessed over the animal. So the confessed sins of the people who were in right standing with God are now being fully removed and placed on the head of the scapegoat. And it says the scapegoat was taken by the hand of a suitable man into the wilderness and it eventually would die because it was a domesticated animal. It didn't do well in the wild. And it would eventually die bearing the sin that had been confessed over the course of the year. Does that make sense? That's basically the summation of what happened on the Day of Atonement. And this was a holy and solemn and sacred day because literally God is working for you. God is removing all record of sin from the tabernacle. This is a serious and important and solemn day. In fact, the people didn't work on this day. We'll read this in just a moment in Leviticus chapter chapter 23. They were to fast on this day. Many, Many times they were fasting. They didn't work. And they were to afflict their souls. We'll address that more in just a moment. So this tells us that the yearly service involved the priest cleansing the sanctuary of any record of the confessed sins of the people that piled up over the course of the year. A form of judgment was taking place at this time. We're told that people, if they had not confessed up to this point, that they would be cut off. Now, we don't know what that looked like. History doesn't tell us. But whether it be that God recognized them as being lost or a judgment happened right then and there or that it was revealed to somebody, we don't know. What we do know is there was serious judgment happening on that day. And people knew when the Day of Atonement is coming, we need to make sure that we're right with God, that our sins are in the sanctuary because He's working for us and we're going to miss it. We're going to miss Trash Day and be stuck with this stuff, right? We got to make sure that we get this in there, okay? But God made full provision for them to be cleansed. We see that, right? Wasn't that God was working against them and they couldn't figure it out. They knew exactly what was going on. God made provision for them to be cleansed, but he gave them freedom to not respond. Are you with me? They can do what they want with that freedom, but I would encourage you to respond wisely with that freedom, right? Anyone here want to bear their sins? Yeah, me neither. This is the best way to work through that. Now, He made provision for them for the sins they didn't know they committed in the morning and evening sacrifices. We dealt with that already, okay? Which again shows us that God is for us, not against us. He's not looking for reasons to disqualify you. That was why He gave them the clear directions to ensure that they would be in good standing. So we get to Leviticus chapter 23, 28, and 29 speaking of the day of atonement, you shall do no work on that same day, for it's the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. Okay, now this word cut off is a term of judgment. So when the sanctuary is being cleansed, there's a judgment taking place. Anytime a Hebrew mind saw the phrase day of atonement, Right? Or the cleansing of the sanctuary. If they heard that phrase, cleansing of the sanctuary, they immediately knew that's synonymous with the day of judgment. Every Hebrew would know that, okay? So when we read through the Bible and we hear about a sanctuary being cleansed, the image that should come into our minds then is judgment. Does that make sense? Okay, that's what we should be seeing here. Now, since everything that happened in the earthly sanctuary was teaching us about what was happening in the heavenly sanctuary, that we need to be looking for biblical evidence that a judgment happens in heaven. Right, we, we need to make a case for that. And that's where we're going next. But I want to go back to a text that we read at the very beginning of last night's presentation. It's found in Daniel chapter 8 and verse 14. Daniel again was given this vision of the ram and the he goat, kind of the havoc that the little horn is, is, is working out. We read about the little horn already. We already addressed that. But then after this happens one of the angels speaks up and says well how long is this going to go on and they say under two thousand and three hundred days then the sanctuary shall be cleansed now how would a hebrew mind respond to this what would they be thinking when they hear that after 2300 days the sanctuary will be cleansed what's going to happen after 2300 days to a hebrew mind we just mentioned it judgment There's going to be some form of judgment taking place if the sanctuary is being cleansed. Okay, now we've already dealt with this before. Those 2,300 days are literal years. We dealt with the 70 weeks last night, the 70 week prophecy. If you missed that, we've got recordings available. We can either email to you or give you a CD. We can give you the notes for it and a handout as well. Uh, We're not going to go into that math. We've already dealt with that, but. What we basically saw was when Daniel was given the vision of 2,300 days, he didn't understand it in Daniel 8. And he's praying desperately in Daniel 9, praying confession and repentance on behalf of Israel because he thinks that a judgment's coming. But he also is thinking that, wait a minute, we were told we'll be in Babylon for 70 years. Now you're saying 2,300 years? No, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. And he's desperately praying, asking God to be merciful, to keep covenant, and he's claiming every promise he can, Okay, begging God to be faithful to the people because he feels like we've been unfaithful in Babylon and maybe God's given us more hard time. He's adding to our sins. He doesn't know what to do right now, so he's freaked out by this. And the angel is sent from heaven in Daniel 9 to give him understanding of the vision he didn't understand in Daniel 8. And instead of telling him exactly what that vision means, he gives him another time prophecy that is a type or a form of what that bigger one means. And it also gives the starting date for that bigger one. Okay, He says that 70 weeks are cut off for your people and for your nation. So 70 weeks of this 2300 year prophecy are reserved just for your people. And we dealt with that whole study last night. If you missed it, I'm sorry, but we'll get the recordings. I can't go through all of it tonight or we we'll would be here until tomorrow. And that wouldn't be very good because I, I have to you know, go to class tomorrow morning. So, um, But basically, the 2,300-year prophecy, when you subtract out that first 70 weeks, there's 1,810 years left okay? uh, of this whole prophecy that, that is basically nothing, nothing of big monumental importance happens until the very end of it. And at the end of the 2300 year prophecy, we land in the year 1844. Okay, that's what we know just from the simple layout of the prophecies that we saw. It began in 457 B.C. when there was a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And 2300 years later, we land in the fall of A.D. 1844. Okay, and again, the math for all that we did last night. So in 1844, something amazing happened in the sanctuary. Now, was it in heaven or on Earth? That's the question. But we were told that after 2300 days, literal years, There's going to be a judgment. The sanctuary is going to be cleansed and there's going to be some form of judgment. The question is, is that in heaven or on Earth? Well, in A.D. 31, Jesus put an end to sacrifices and offerings, Daniel 9 tells us, at the cross. And the earthly temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. We talked about that before as well. So it has to be the heavenly sanctuary. So Daniel 8 verse 14 is inaugurating a new era in salvation history. What happened? Well, down here it meant that the sanctuary was cleansed and there was judgment, right? They're using Day of Atonement language. So the way we understand what's happening in heaven is based upon what happened on the Day of Atonement here. Does that make sense? We we can connect. We can see what's happening there by the picture we were given here. So why does anything in heaven need to be cleansed? Well, when you confess your sin, it goes into the heavenly sanctuary, just like it did on the earthly sanctuary. Remember, everything that happened there was a picture of what's happening in heaven. That's what the Bible told us. Okay, so it's covered with the blood of Jesus and we've reached atonement. And God doesn't want any record of that sin to remain. So beginning in 1844, he started that process of removing all record of the sins of humanity that were confessed into the heavenly sanctuary. He began that process aright. So in 1844, Jesus opened the veil, walked into the most holy place to begin his role on the Day of Atonement of removing our sins, which have been covered by the blood of Jesus from the heavenly sanctuary. And then during the millennium, that thousand year period after the second coming, those sins are placed upon the head of Satan, who's released to an uninhabited land. Do you remember during our study on the millennium and hell, we talked about this idea that Satan is on an uninhabited earth for a thousand years, to think about what he's done, bearing the weight of what he's done. okay, And then he's completely destroyed at the end of that process. So what we saw about the scapegoat is an exact picture of what Satan will go through at the close of time, right? our time here on Earth, uh, when, before the Earth is made new. He'll be destroyed and the Earth and the universe will be cleansed from sin. So that process began right in 1844. We'll find its full completion at the end of those thousand years. So after the Day of Atonement, at the Second Coming, these sins will be blotted out entirely and the world and the universe itself will be cleansed. So 1844 was the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement, right? That process began then. It's not over yet. But that process began then. An investigation has started, okay? He's looking into the records of what's in heaven and removing those and we know this is the case from daniel chapter 7 and verse 9. now in daniel chapter 2 there was this timeline of kingdoms we had a head of gold right that statue a head of gold chest and arms of silver the belly and thighs of bronze the legs of iron the feet of iron and clay representing babylon medo persia greece rome and then the division of rome what we know today as modern europe uh, and then the next thing that comes is a stone cut without hands that destroys that statue. And that stone fills the whole earth. That's talking about Jesus, right? reestablishing his kingdom on this earth. Well, in Daniel, there's this theme of repeat and enlarge. So you're shown something in one place in Daniel 2. Not a lot of details about these kingdoms. Not much to go from, apart from just we know what history says, because Daniel told him, you, king, are this head of gold, and a kingdom inferior to yours will come after you. We already know that history. In fact, Daniel 8 already shows us the history of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, three of those kingdoms. So Daniel 8 already told us those. They gave the specific names of those kingdoms even. So we know that much. But what happens after the fact that's laid out there, but in Daniel seven, it's like it zooms in and we get even more details of these kingdoms and some information is added. There's a first uh, animal, a lion that represents Babylon. The second animal is a bear that has three ribs in its mouth and it's raised up on one side representing the Medo-Persians. The third animal is a, a four headed leopard, which represents Greece. When Alexander the great died, four generals took over for him. And then after that, we have this kind of terrible tin horned beast and from there a little horn power kind of the anti-christian power and then before the second coming is listed there it lists this okay in daniel chapter 7 and verse 9 it says i watched till the thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated his garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool his throne was a fiery flame and its wheels a burning fire daniel 7 and verse 10 now a fiery stream issued and came forth before him a thousand thousands ministered to him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And then it says the court was seated and the books were opened. Daniel seven adds more details. Daniel eight adds even more details. Daniel 11 adds so many details, historians still wrestle with a full clear interpretation of it. There's some decent ones, but there's, there's varying views because it's so like deep and detailed. But in Daniel 7, there's a detail added that says that there's an, a, some form of judgment happening, right? There's a court seated, and the books are opened, and this precedes the second coming of Jesus. There's an idea that an investigation and judgment is happening before the second coming, okay? And, and then that judgment is going to involve books. Now, the interesting thing is when you get to Revelation chapter 14... There are these three messages of mercy that God gives to the world before the second coming, preparing them for the second coming. It's called the three angels' messages. It's from Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 12. Look what's listed in the first angel's message that God gives to the world. It says, Then I saw another angel, Revelation 14 of verse 6, flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. We've been talking about that regularly, lifting up Jesus. Okay every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him. And then what does it say? For For the hour of His judgment has come. Now, this is before the second coming. So we've seen it in Daniel. We see it alluded to in Leviticus chapter 16, and we know it's a type of what's happening in heaven according to Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. So what's alluded to here is that there's a judgment happening, an investigation happening before the second coming of Jesus. Okay? For the hour of judgment has come. Now what tense is that? Past tense? Future tense? Present tense? Present tense. It's happening right now. So that message of mercy that's going to the world begins with the fact that there is a judgment happening right now. They first preach the gospel because no one's going to be ready for the judgment unless the gospel is preached first anyway. That would be terrible, right? That would be a horrible experience for someone to just come up to you and say, Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. That makes no sense, right? We could respond like Pharaoh did. Who's God that I should care? But if you preach the gospel and show that you have need of a Savior and that Jesus died for you, even though we are unworthy, that would lead somebody to fear God, to reverence Him and to be willing to worship him, and to be willing right, to, to live a life that would be honorable in the midst of knowing they live in the judgment. Does that make sense? Kind of a chronology here that happens. Okay, it says, and worship him who made heaven, earth, the sea, and the springs of water. That's actually a direct quote from the Sabbath commandment. So it's calling people to worship on the seventh day Sabbath. We addressed that already in a previous meeting. So right before the second coming, they're giving this message that the time of his judgment has now come. Why is he doing this? Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants people to be saved. God knows that judgment is happening. He wants us to know a judgment is happening so we can ensure that our sins are in the sanctuary, right, so that we're ready when that judgment is finished. Does that make sense? God in His mercy is preparing us for that judgment that's currently happening and is still ongoing, and He's wanting to set us up to succeed because He wants us in the kingdom. Amen? God wants you in heaven, beloved. If there are 12, we've mentioned this more than once, but if there are 12 gates on that new Jerusalem, to me that implies ease of access. God is wanting people in that city. That's what he's seeking for. But there are parameters, right? He's calling us to believe in Jesus, to accept the gospel, to respond to the gospel appeal, because we're living in the midst of the judgment time, okay? So, He's preaching the everlasting gospel, who's come to save the world from their sins. So, this idea of the hour of His judgment has come can only make sense in the light of what we've been discussing this evening, that a judgment has begun in heaven that precedes the second coming. That verse makes no sense apart from what we talked about tonight. There's no other option to explain that. But this idea of God investigating before He renders a judgment is not new to Him. This isn't the first time He's done this. Look at multiple instances here in the book of Genesis, for example. In Genesis chapter 3, he asked Adam and Eve where they are and what happened. Now, do you think God knew what happened and where they were? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. So whose benefit is he asking for? By the way, parents, have you ever done that before? Have you ever asked your children what they did knowing what they did? Well, then are you asking for your benefit or someone else's? Their benefit. So they can understand how they got to where they are. It's no different here. God's not shaming us as a parent, but God was trying to help Adam and Eve understand, I'm letting you know that I'm investigating something before I render a judgment. Do you see that? God is letting them know I'm investigating what has happened before I have to render a judgment to you in this moment, because they had made a big mistake, right, that you and I are reaping the glorious benefits from. (laughs) Sickness, COVID, death, disease, depression, discouragement, and the list goes on. It happens again in Genesis 4. He asked Cain where Abel was. Again, does he know where Abel is at this stage? He says, yeah, his blood's crying from the ground. I know exactly what happened. But he's letting Cain know, I'm investigating what has happened before I have to render this judgment upon you. Happens again in Genesis 6. It says that God saw the wickedness of man on the earth before the flood had happened. God was looking, God was investigating before he brings the flood in Genesis 6, again letting us know, before I render big, big judgments, I want you to know I'm looking into the deep, I'm not just reactionary here, I'm investigating before I do something, and again, it's not for his benefit, it's so that we will understand that he is just in his dealings, are you with me tonight? Yeah. God wants us to understand that what he's doing is holy, righteous, just, good, and fair, And that's why he goes through this lengthy process of not just, you know, he's, I'm just going to phrase it this way, he's explicitly investigating before he does it. And it's for your good and for mine, so that we will have greater trust in the judgment he's about to render. Happens again in Genesis 11. God literally comes down to planet Earth to see the people have built the Tower of Babel. He's investigating what they're doing before he disperses them throughout the Earth in Genesis 11. Then we get to Genesis chapter 18, and God literally comes down to planet Earth right, and speaks to Abraham. We believe it's Jesus and two angels in human form come and visit Abraham in Genesis chapter 18. And he literally says, can I not tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And he tells Abraham, I am going to Sodom to see if what I'm hearing is true. Now, did God Almighty need to come down from heaven to planet earth to walk over to Sodom to figure out whether something was going on or not? Did He have to do that? God here is desperate to be understood and trusted. Do you see that? He didn't do this for His benefit. He's doing it for your benefit, for my benefit, for the onlooking universe to realize that the judgment and the serious judgment He's about to render to these people is just. I'm looking into things before I do this because I want you to know how trustworthy I am, okay? So the question is why, and it's because he's desperate to be understood, he wants us to realize that he's absolutely trustworthy and he's always done what is in our best interest. Because God also realizes that we are not the only ones who are being judged. Satan raised heavy accusations against God in heaven. He's unjust, he's unfair, he can't be trusted, don't trust this guy. So what is God doing? He's taking even more careful measures because he knows that we're looking. The unfallen angels are looking. The unfallen worlds even are looking. And he's showing himself to be a person of integrity, of other-centered love, and of fairness. Do you guys see that? God himself is being judged in the midst of this judgment. Not just us. It's not just about you, and this is why he's going through this painstaking effort to be understood so that none can level any accusation against him that had any weight. Here's the point. The whole point of the Day of Atonement and the pre-Advent judgment, the investigative judgment, however you want to call it, is that there has to come a time where an inventory is taken before Jesus comes to give the just reward to those on the earth. Someone has to investigate what people have chosen before they can be given their reward. Doesn't that make sense? You got to do an inventory. God is telling us this information beforehand to empower us to make good choices and to make things right before that judgment closes. That's a God of love and of mercy and justice and fairness. And that's a God that's inviting you to bring your sins to Him this evening to be cleansed. Amen? Because God wants you in heaven. That's the point. 1 John chapter 1, and verse 19 says that if we confess, or 1 John 1, 9, I should say, says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how it reads in the English, but it's not how it reads in the original language. It actually says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to separate us from our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if you remember Isaiah 59, and verse 2, your sins have separated you from your God, but we're told that we confess and we lay those sins at the feet of Jesus, He will separate us from our sins so that He doesn't have to separate us from Him in the final judgment. Amen? That's the point, beloved. That's the point. He is faithful and just to separate us from our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And He's also wanting us to realize that He will be fully just in the judgment that He will have to render after the millennium the people who were destroyed outside of that holy city, God will be proven holy, righteous, just, and good for giving those people what they themselves would choose because they want nothing to do with them. And for God to strong-arm them and bring them into heaven against their will, heaven would be hell to them because it's only a place of other-centered love, and they've chosen to cherish the principle of selfishness, Satan's kingdom principle, as you remember from our previous presentations. So here's the big, beautiful teaching. I don't know if you can read all the details on this. It's a nice-looking chart, but you may not be able to read it from the back 40 out there. But basically, this is the same timeline that we've talked about before, and it gives all the markers the important events. There's a decree for the 70 weeks of the first portion here. There's a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which begins a 2300-year prophecy and the 70-week prophecy. They start at the same time, and within... The first seven weeks of that prophecy, they rebuild that city. 49 years later, the city's finished and rebuilt. And then it says that the Messiah will be baptized. Jesus will be baptized in AD 27. He did it exactly at that date, that Jesus would die in the middle of that final week of the 70 week prophecy. He died exactly as the prophecy said he would. And at the end of that prophecy, the Jewish nation's probation would close. They would no longer be the messengers to reach the world. And the gospel would go to the Gentiles through the new vehicle, the Christian church, which you and I have a privilege to be a part of today. Okay. In AD 34 and the last remaining event to happen in the 2300 year prophecy was this idea of the investigative judgment. And by the way, the 70 week prophecy is really just a small snapshot of what's happening in the big prophecy. Right? There's a time of probation granted for people to be made right with God for a form of vindication. The Jews rejected that, unfortunately. They didn't make the right decision, but you and I can make the right decision. Amen? So God was teaching us principles about this bigger judgment through a smaller judgment that happened at a localized region for the nation of Israel. There's principles of that that apply to the 2300 days, which I think is such a beautiful, beautiful thing. But here's another piece of good news. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it says, Therefore he also is able, speaking of Jesus, to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Amen? Amen. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is all he thinks about. This is all he wants to do is to intercede for you and for me again. Amen. Amen. And I don't live off of those things, but man, it's good news. So Jesus ever lives to advocate and fight for us. He's absolutely and totally on our side. And the judgment is good news that he's working on our behalf to remove all record of sin for us. In fact, there was a celebration after the Day of Atonement, right? In the Old Testament sanctuary services, there was a celebration there because it's a good reason to party, right? To get rid of your pain and sorrow and so forth is a bad reason to party, but to party in a sanctified way, celebrating the goodness of Jesus advocating for your behalf is absolutely reasonable. And by the way, we're going to have one of those celebrations a week from this coming Sabbath because people are giving their lives to Jesus in baptism. By God's grace, it's a great reason to celebrate. All of heaven celebrates, we're told, when people make decisions. Jesus says the angels rejoice and all of heaven rejoices. Well, I think we should be rejoicing living in the judgment hour because that means that Jesus is working for me to get rid of any record of my sin. That is means for celebration, not fear and terror. That's means of celebration. God's working for me, even now. Yes, he's cleansing a record of sin in the heavenly sanctuary, but he's also doing a work in your heart and in mind on the Day of Atonement. He's cleansing our hearts of any record of sin. And many of us, I'm sure, can testify to this, that when we give our lives to Jesus, there's certain things that we don't do anymore that we used to do. Can anyone testify to that? That's only by the grace of God, beloved. That's not you. That's Jesus working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And if Jesus can start a work like that, you better believe he can finish it. Amen? Amen? And that's the purpose of this beautiful teaching. So I want to close with kind of a helpful analogy. But... Literally, this is what's going to happen. God himself is on trial before the all-looking universe. Is he just? Is he not? Can he be trusted? Can he not be trusted? And here's the crazy thing. God is going to point to your life to vindicate himself in court. The Apostle Paul says that God is going to use the church to communicate his all-knowing wisdom to the unfallen universe. And you think, excuse you? Like, if you're having the biggest trial of the century and you're looking for your star witness, you're going to point to me? I would pick somebody else. I don't know about you, but like, not me. God is going to point to the church to vindicate himself in court? Yes. He's going to point to the church. Because even the angels are longing to look into the things of the plan of salvation, Peter tells us in his epistles. Angels desire to look into this, but they also have some stake. They got some skin in the game here. I'll use an illustration here that was helpful for me that someone once shared. Imagine there's a doctor who's working in, in, in a really like a... Really, really difficult ward of the hospital. He's got to wear the moon suit, everything, and he. The, and this boy is in a bubble. He has a highly infectious disease, and he's in a bubble. The doctor has to wear the suit to even attend to him, and he's not violating any HIPAA stuff. Okay, I got some medical professionals in the room here. He's not violating any HIPAA stuff, but he does share with his with his spouse and his kids that you know there's this boy I'm working with, and we need to pray for him because he's it, it's it's serious. It's a highly infectious disease. You've got to go through all these precautionary measures to even go in there to see him. And imagine that dad comes home one day and tells his wife and his precious children there's good news. Remember that boy I was telling you about in the hospital? Yeah. Is he better? Uh, Yeah. And I adopted him. He's coming home tomorrow. Now, how do you think the family's feeling at this stage whenever all they've heard about is how highly infectious this disease is? And what they're hearing is he's coming tomorrow. Would you be a little uneasy about that? Like the main question is going to be like, how do you know? Like, how do you know that you know? And that's, that's the scary thing about COVID, like, do you? Do you not? I don't know. I can transmit it without even knowing I have it. Like it's those scary unknowns can really make us uncomfortable. And him telling them that it's OK, you think that's really going to sway their conscience? No, they want to see results like I want lab results. Show me paperwork. I need to know that I know that I know that it's safe to bring him home. Well, beloved, this is what the angels are going through right now. The angels are being told that it's safe for you to live next to them in heaven. Now, they've gone through this rebellion before. They know what this looks like, and they wonder, is this really the right decision? And this is why God points to us to vindicate himself in court, because the gospel that's at work in your life only helps him in the judgment. Amen? Amen. God actually believes in you. God actually believes that the gospel works and that he can transform his people. Why else would he do what he did through Jesus? He actually believes that he can do that. So God's not looking for reasons to zap you. The judgment's far more beautiful than that. He's looking for an excuse to take you to heaven. That's why we have a judgment. The universe is looking to see what's happening, and God is showing that it's safe to bring us home. And he's gathering all the evidence he can find to show the devil and all his angels that we're safe to bring home. And this is a beautiful truth beloved the judgment is not god choosing who will be saved and who will be lost many of us think that right that we're all going to go stand before saint peter and he's got that roster did you make the list did you not make the list right some of us kind of had this this you know caricature view that we've been given in churches and other things and there's like the red button and the blue button or the red button and the green button right and if you're good enough the green button and the floor doesn't drop out from under you and you can walk into that gate but if you're not good enough, they push the red button. The floor drops out. The alligators are there. It's terrible. Ah, all of that. Right? Many of us think that this is what the judgment is about. That is not what the judgment is about. It's not about God choosing you're saved or you lost. It's God recognizing those who have themselves chosen to be saved or lost. Do you see the difference? God has literally positioned himself so that in the judgment, he doesn't have to make any decisions. He opens the book of life and says, okay, so-and-so, what have you decided? And he gives you what you want. If you want eternity with Jesus, you'll have eternity with Jesus. If you lived as if you didn't want eternity with Jesus, he's not going to give you that because you don't want that. Are you with me? This is the beautiful teaching of the judgment. The decisions have already been made by you and by me. So the scariest part of the judgment is that God respects our decisions so much. He's going to allow you to determine your own destiny and ask you, what have you chosen? That's what's scary about the judgment. Not that God's going to push the red button. No one will be able to challenge God's decisions in the judgment because he hasn't made any. We made those decisions. He's just honoring the decisions that we've made. So it's not God's future decision that should cause us to fear, beloved. It's the decisions that you and I are making right now that we need to fear. Do you see that? And there is a Savior in heaven who is willing to enable you to make better decisions, who is willing to set people free from the shackles and the chains of sin. He's in that business. He ever lives to do this. It's his job, and he loves his job. But will you let him? Will you give him permission to have all of you? That's the question. That's the issue in the judgment. Did I truly trust him with all of my heart? Or was I trying to do me and get mine while also trying to follow him? That's the main question. Where is your allegiance? And if you want Jesus, you'll get Jesus. But if you want Jesus and fill in the blank, it doesn't work that way. Does that make sense? God wants all of you. Jesus wants all of you, and the Holy Spirit is willing to make you into what you need to be. We talked about that already. You don't have to fight this battle alone. You don't have to white-knuckle your way to heaven, but what he does need is a full and unreserved commitment to him. That's what he's asking tonight. And if he has that, it's a done deal. Amen? Amen? It's a done deal. That's all he's asking. Can I just have all of you? And if I have all of you, I'll advocate for you in the judgment. I'm fighting for you. I'm working for you. I'll do what it takes. Just... Give me your heart. Has this message made sense this evening? Yes? Okay. So we're going to do what we started doing a couple nights ago. We'll, we'll have our appeals, we'll make our decisions, and then we'll record our decisions on the cards that we've been given. So here's the first one. And you can just raise your hands for this, okay? If this is you, you can just raise your hand. Then I'll give you the the stuff for the card here in just a moment. Don't fill it out right now. Just, Just kind of focus on responding to what you've heard. The first thing is this. Number one, I understand that the Bible teaches that there's a sanctuary in heaven and a judgment is taking place right now before Jesus comes again. If you understand that, I just invite you to raise your hands to heaven. You've seen that from the text of Scripture. All right, amen. Number two, Jesus, I want your blood to cover my sins in that book of life and I want to live a life that will honor you from this day forward. If that's you, I invite you to raise your hands to heaven. I, I want your blood to cover me in the book of life, and I want to live a life that honors this price that you've paid for me. Amen. Number three, I would like to give my life to Christ. If you haven't done that, I invite you to give your life to Christ this evening. I want to say yes to Jesus. I want him to have my heart and have my life. Okay? And number four, if you'd like to be baptized or rebaptized, and you have not told us that yet, Hey, you haven't notated that anywhere. If you'd like to be baptized or rebaptized, if that's you, I invite you to raise your hands to heaven. Okay? Amen. And then the last uh section here is just gonna be for you to fill out your stuff on the card itself. So here's those numbers again. I understand, number one, that the Bible teaches there's a sanctuary in heaven and the judgment's taking place right now before he comes again. If that's you, you can check that box. We can record those decisions. You've made the decision, now you can record that decision. Number two, I want your blood, Jesus, to cover my sins in that book of life. And I wanna live a life that will honor that from this day forward, you can check that box. Number three, I'd like to give my life to Jesus. Number four, I'd like to be baptized or rebaptized, And then number five, if you have questions or prayer requests, you can write those on the back of the card and we'll follow up with you. Someone from our team will follow up with you and we'd be happy to do that, okay? I again encourage you to go through the handouts, to study through those, to examine them for yourselves. Uh, like good Bereans, to see whether these things are so. And if you have questions or even concerns, I would love to hear them. I would love to hear them. I would love accountability in my life. And if you want to talk about that, let's do so. Uh, I just want to know what the Bible teaches. And if I need to see something, I need to see that. To, uh, Friday evening, not tomorrow night, Friday evening, we're going to talk about the coming crisis that's that's soon to hit this earth. So you're not going to want to miss that. It's going to be Friday evening. But let's close with a word of prayer and seal these decisions, and then the pastor will come up and have our closing announcements and our giveaways. God, thank you uh, for speaking to us this evening, for making it clear that you're working for us. The question is, are we letting you? And so, God, I pray that we would have a deeper consecration, a deeper experience with you tonight, and that you would draw us ever closer to you, that you'd open our eyes to those things that you've been asking for, that we've not been willing to go there just yet. Lord, I pray that after what we've seen this evening, we would recognize. It's not in my best interest to keep saying no to you. It's in my best interest to say yes and fully tonight. Uh, Not because you're looking for reasons to exclude us, but because you want to set us free. You want us to have a life that's free from shame and regret and hopelessness. And that process begins through repentance, confession, and entering into the joy of our Lord and the salvation that He brings. So, God, I pray that you would cover our sins with the blood of Jesus, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, and that you would transform us by your grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.